can look on the back of your program as I read from 1 John chapter 4. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This morning's message is titled Radical Faith, and today there is basically a consensus in this country and in the West in general that there are two types of religious belief in the world, a good kind and a bad kind. There's a good kind called moderate, and there's a bad kind called radical or fundamentalist. We hear these terms thrown out there all the time on the news, in the, in the paper, in conversation. And moderate religious faith helps people be nice and is really pretty harmless. Radical religious faith causes prejudice, causes violence, causes oppression, and causes war. Things that nobody wants. So we try to stamp out radical religious faith and promote moderate religious faith. Faith. The point that you know we as a nation send all sorts of money and support to moderate Muslim groups, for instance, so that they'll, they'll beat out these radical Muslim groups. So we hear these terms thrown out there all the time, but what I want to do to start this morning is describe kind of the content of what makes a faith radical, what makes a religious belief radical, what's the bad kind, and then what makes a religious faith moderate, what's the What's the good kind? So, so three qualities of radical religious faith. The first quality of radical faith, radical fundamentalist hardline belief, is that radical faith believes that we've got the only truth and everybody out there is wrong. This leads to exclusivity. Each of these qualities, each of these distinctives lead to a really icky character quality. So we've got the only truth. Everybody else out there is wrong. Our prophet, our founder was the real guy. Everybody else is a false prophet, and we're exclusive. That's the first thing, that radical faith is characterized by exclusivity in this claim to the only truth. The second thing that radical faith is characterized by, it's not just exclusivity, but it's also this self-righteousness. Because not only do we have the only truth, but we also, we've rewritten the rule book a little bit. We've made the rules that much harder to keep so that just a few people can keep them. And we're the people that keep them, and we're on the right path, and everybody else is living immoral, impure lives. So, like, uh, an extreme version of this would be, you know, if you don't wear this sort of headdress or if you don't wear a skirt of the right length, then you're basically, you know, sexually promiscuous or something like that. But a version, a, like, less extreme version of this that plenty of you in here maybe even grew up with is, like, if you dance or go to the movies or drink alcohol, you're somehow less pure. You're somehow immoral. You're somehow less holy. So that's the second thing that people who have a radical faith do is they rewrite the rule books and they make the rules harder to keep. And that leads to self-righteousness. The third quality of radical religious faith is escapism. Because one of the things that radical religious faith teaches is that the spiritual world is more real than the physical world. It's more important than the physical world. What counts is not this world, but what counts is getting to the next world, heaven, that sort of thing. So a really extreme version of this would be uh, if you have to like destroy a building to get a better place in heaven, do it. It's worth it. But a less extreme version would be just 
well, it doesn't matter. Society doesn't matter. We don't really need to take care of the world. The main thing is just getting people to go to heaven. So radical religious believers tend to make really bad citizens because they just care about the next world and they don't care about this world. So you're like, okay, I've got it. Radical religious belief equals bad. I'll be a moderate. I'll be a moderate Christian. I've always liked the sound of that anyway. Moderate. That's cool. Let's go home. Sing our closing song. I, I've got it. Not, it's not quite that easy for this reason. Let me describe moderate religious faith. Moderate religious faith, in reaction to everything radical, says this. The exact opposite on all three points. Instead of being exclusive and saying we've got the only truth, moderate religious faith says everybody has a part of the truth, and let's emphasize what we have in common. I mean, look, we agree about the big stuff, right? We agree about all the biggies. Don't major on the minors. Let's just talk about the stuff that all, all of us agree on, all the major religions we agree on. That's the first thing moderates do. The second thing is, instead of emphasizing the spiritual world over the physical world, they say, hey, let's focus on what good religion can do here. Let's not focus on heaven and hell and all that spiritual, eternal stuff. Because who really knows? Let's focus on what good can religion do here. Can religion make life better for people here? And the third thing when it comes to the self-righteousness, moderate religious faith avoids self-righteousness by having really lax moral standards. We don't want to impose these heavy moral standards, these heavy rules on other people, and let's go easy on ourselves too. You say, it sounds better than ever before. Moderate religious faith sounds great. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it is Jesus in the Gospels is anything but moderate. He's anything but moderate. He, none of those things I just described as moderate faith fit Jesus at all. In fact, if you go back to those characteristics of radical faith, this idea of saying, I'm the only truth, I've got the only truth, this idea of saying the spiritual world is more important than the physical world, this idea of saying that the rule book that you've been playing by isn't good enough, we need an even more narrow rule book, Jesus looks a lot more like a moderate or like a radical than he does like a moderate. He never says, let's emphasize what's in common. He's always talking about how he's different. He never says, let's emphasize what good we can do here. He's always talking about the kingdom of heaven coming. He's never, he never says, hey, don't worry about the rules. He always says, let's step the rules up a notch. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus taking what at that time was the strictest religious rule book there was and saying, hey, you've heard this. How about this? Let's start, set the bar a little bit higher. Hey, you've heard this? How about this? Let's set the bar a little bit higher. When it comes to emphasizing the spiritual over the physical, Jesus was the guy that said, hey, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin in this world, best idea would be for you to just chop off your hand because it's better for you to lose your hand than lose your whole soul in hell. The next life is more important. It's a bigger deal. And then when it comes to this exclusivity stuff, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus sounds like a radical. This is bad news for us. Do we want to be with these radical people? Do we want to be with these people that, that cause all these problems? Because here's the thing. Exclusivity, self-righteousness, and this emphasis of the spiritual world over the physical world. When those things combine, that escapism and that exclusivity and arrogance and that self-righteousness, when they combine in the human heart and in human com communities, the results are really awful, really deadly, really ugly. I won't deny for a second that those things really do happen, they really do get bad, and they really are a cause of all this conflict in the world. So what's the deal with Jesus? 
What's strange about Jesus is though he possesses all of those same qualities of radical religious faith. Somehow, for some reason, he doesn't possess the negative character qualities that go with them. Because he says he's the only way, but yet he's not exclusive. He's hanging out with all sorts of different people. And he says that the spiritual world is more important than the physical world, and yet he's not escapist for some reason. He's very present. He feels people's pain. He cries when people die. He heals people. And he says that this new rule book is what everybody should follow, and yet he's never self-righteous. How is this? What, this is a puzzle. Who is this guy? Who is this guy that has all the qualities of radical religious faith, and yet none of the negative characteristics that always go with it? And how is that possible? That's what I want to do this morning. I want to unravel this puzzle. And the answer, just to give you a, a picture of where we're going, is that the gospel, the message that Jesus preaches, the religious system that he's building, is so unique, it's so different than every other religious system. It's the only one that it goes on an absolutely opposite trajectory of every other religious system. That is, you become more radical, you become less exclusive. You become less self-righteous. You become less escapist. It, it's upside down from all these other religious systems. Every other religious system, it's cool if you're on the surface. Just stick to the big stuff, but don't get into the nitty-gritty because that's where it gets weird. But Christianity is the only religious system. Jesus is the only religious figure who, when you get more radical, when you dig deeper, that's when things start to get really good. And we're going to talk about why that is. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look this morning at the radical claims that Jesus makes, that you would, even if we're feeling somewhat resistant to it, that you would open our eyes to the type of person that he was and how his uniqueness changes everything. God, if we are afraid of this word radical, if we're afraid of this concept of being so devoted to something, I pray that you show us how being devoted to Jesus in that way is something that's qualitatively different in every way than being devoted to any other religious system in that way. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's look again at these first two verses on the back of your outline. These verses, they're short, but they have three qualities of the gospel, three qualities of Jesus' religious system that set it apart from every other religious system. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. First thing I want to emphasize, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come. The first way that Jesus' religious system differs than every other, from every other religious system is that Jesus came. He came. So he didn't just say, I know the truth. He didn't just say, I can tell you the truth. He said, I am the truth. He came to earth. He was God. Every other religious system says, oh, we've got a prophet. We've got somebody that knows God. We've got somebody who God talked to. And Christianity says our founder was God. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound like it's going to make anybody any less exclusive. In fact, it sounds like it's going to have the exact opposite effect. You know, oh, well, your, your religious teacher was just, you know, a prophet of God. Well, ours was God. We're better. But it's actually not that way at all because of this reason. Because of the difference between being taught truth and being shown truth. Having truth be conveyed to you as some piece of knowledge, some cold, distant, out there fact versus meeting it in the flesh. Because what happens when we meet Jesus? What happens when we meet Jesus is we see truth embodied, 
we see somebody who doesn't compromise that he is, he, he never compromises on the fact that he is the only way. And yet, when he's walking around talking to people, how does he act? He's never forcing himself on people. He's never hitting people over the head with truth. Rather, he's opening himself up to all sorts of different types of people, and he is, instead of forcing himself on them, instead of arguing with them, instead of hitting them with the truth, he's more wooing them. He's more offering the truth as an option, but they have to be the ones to take it. And we talked about this last week when we talked about God all throughout the Old Testament and the way he acts toward his people. God never compromises on the claim that he is the only God, the only true God, that he's the most powerful, that he's the only one worth worshiping. And you would think that a God like that would demand that everybody follow him. But instead what he does is he woos the image that God uses for himself all throughout the Old Testament is the image of someone, of a man trying to woo a woman, of a man who's going after a woman. He wants her love. He loves her, but he won't force it on her. That's the way God portrays himself. And Israel is this lover that is unfaithful, that comes to God and then turns away from him, comes to God and then turns away. And God never turns his back on Israel. And Jesus is the same way when he comes to earth. He is truth embodied. He has the only truth, and he doesn't force it on anyone. So this is why, even though Jesus claims, like a normal religious radical, to have the only truth there is, somehow it doesn't result in exclusivity because it's truth embodied. It's present, it's real, it's in the flesh, and he goes around inviting people, wooing people, instead of forcing on them. That's what Christians are supposed to do. Christians are supposed to be open. Christians are supposed to walk around with this truth, not as something that you hit people over the head with, but as something that is offered humbly. And that, here's the biggest thing, that you're willing to get rejected for. Because what ultimately happens so often to God in the Old Testament, and what happens to Jesus so often in the Gospel? People reject him. In fact, Jesus is rejected to the point of abuse. He offers this truth, the only truth there is, and people reject him to the point of abuse. Our job, your job as a Christian, is not to convince people of the truth. It's not to make people submit to the truth. Your job as a Christian is to offer yourself up for rejection, to constantly offer yourself up for rejection, even abuse to those around you, because your confidence in the truth is such that it's not something that you have to argue for. It's not something that you want to force on somebody else. It's something that you're so sure of that you're willing to suffer for it, just as Jesus was. That's if you're a Christian. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God may be wooing you. God may may be, with his truth, coming after you, pursuing you. He's not going to force it on you. But do you see signs in your life that God is wooing you with his truth? That's the first difference between Christianity and every other religious system, is that the truth is embodied. Jesus came, and because of that, it looks completely different. The second difference between Christianity, between Jesus' religious system and every other is in this next phrase. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So Jesus didn't just come as a spirit or as an angel or as some sort of ghost. He comes in the flesh. Now why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus comes as a baby instead of coming as just some sort of like supernatural being? It's important because it speaks to this escapism problem with radical religion. Radical religion in saying the spiritual world is somehow more important than the physical world, it leads to this escapism we talked about where you just, who cares about the physical world? And the goal is, let's leave this world and get up to God. 
But what happens with Jesus is that instead of us having to leave this world and get up to God, God leaves heaven and comes down to us. And he takes on flesh. The significance of that is, it's not that I want you to escape this humanity. It's that I want to change it. So I want to transform it. I want to redeem it. And Jesus, when he dies on the cross, rises from the dead, the strangest thing happens. He decides to keep this body. He rises back from the dead. He comes back to life, and he still has a body. He doesn't say, oh, I'm glad I got that icky body experiment thing over with. He keeps his body. He keeps his body. What's the statement? The statement is, I want to redeem humanity. I don't want you to escape. I don't want you to get away from all this. I want to transform it. I want to redeem it. So, yes, the spiritual world is more important. But the point is not to get away from the physical world to the spiritual world. The point is the spiritual world invading the, the physical world and transforming it. And that's why, even though Jesus, like radical religions, preaches this priority of the spiritual over the physical, it doesn't result in escapism. So what are Christians supposed to do? Christians are supposed to be good citizens. They're supposed to prefigure, they're supposed to point to this sort of invasion of the spiritual into the physical. So we don't work for the good of mankind because it's the only thing worth doing or because it's the only thing that we can understand or because we prioritize the physical over the spiritual. It's not that. We work for the good of mankind because it's an image of God's transformative work in remaking the world, in remaking people. And in that, it's not like radical belief where it's kind of escapist, and it's not like moderate belief where it says, oh, who cares about the eternal realities? But it's this new way that Jesus institutes that's unlike either. It's the second thing. First, it's different in that he comes, and that means truth is warm and inviting and woos and suffers instead of hitting people over the head. And second, he transforms us. He transforms us instead of taking us away to some other place. The third thing, the third difference between Jesus' religious system and every other religious system is in this last phrase, this last sentence in this passage. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we said that one of the qualities of religious, radical religious belief is setting up this new moral standard that's really hard to keep so you can kind of look down in judgment on all the outsiders who don't keep it. Jesus does that. He sets up this new moral standard that's really hard to keep. We're going to look at one of the precepts of it in just a second. But the difference between the system that he sets up and the system that radical religions normally set up is radical religions normally set up a system that's so hard that just a few people can keep it. They want just a few people to be able to keep it so they can kind of be the insiders and look down on everybody else. Jesus sets up a religious system that's so hard that nobody can keep it. It's so hard that not one person can keep all the rules. And why does he do that? What's the point of setting up a system of rules that's that hard to keep? The point is that in the end, he doesn't want you to keep it. In the end, he wants to show you that you can't. In the end, he doesn't want you to just be a better person. In the end, he wants to be better for you. And that's what the meaning of this sentence is here. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. God takes the initiative. Every other religious system works like this. Here's the rules, and if you love God, you'll keep the rules. Christianity says, here are the rules. Nobody could keep these rules. But guess what? God loves you anyway. God loves you even though you can't keep the rules. And what he wants to do is he wants to come into your life and help you. He wants to pay the price for your wrongdoing and then come into your life and help you. 
So Jesus dies the death that all of us should have died for our wrongdoing. And then in rising again in power says, now I want to help you. I want to make it possible for you to live in this way. People use the Sermon on the Mount as this example of kind of something we could all agree upon. Like the Sermon on the Mount, that's like a good nugget of truth that anybody, even if they're not a Christian, could, could think of as here's something that we could all follow. But have you read the Sermon on the Mount? It's impossible. It's impossible. Every part of it is impossible to keep. Jesus is saying, let me come into your life. Live through me. I want to be the one that does it, not you. And in that, the whole thing is flipped around. Because every, I've heard it, I've heard it said before that the primary thrust of Christianity, like every other religion, is love God. You know, the, the big idea is just love God. That's completely false. That's 100% backwards. The Bible says again and again that the point of Christianity is just to wake up and realize how much God loves you. This is love. This is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. All of a sudden, guess what? Self-righteousness is out the window. There is no room for self-righteousness anymore. If you are not depending upon your own moral purity, your own virtue, if you're saying, look, I could never be good enough, and instead you're saying, I'm not saying I love God like I'm supposed to. I'm just saying I know God loves me. I know that's something I can count on. I know that's something that I don't have to do anything to perform for to get that. And in that, then, God's Spirit comes into your life, and you start slowly becoming the type of person that you never thought you could be otherwise. So that's why Christianity is different. That's the difference between the religious system that Jesus sets up and all the other religious systems. And that's why, even though Jesus looks like a radical instead of a moderate, and we know in today's world that the radical is what you're not supposed to be, even though he looks like a radical instead of a moderate, he doesn't end up being these things that lead to war, that lead to violence, that lead to oppression. He doesn't end up being exclusive. He doesn't end up being escapist. He doesn't end up being self-righteous. But he charged this new way that's based primarily on God's love for us instead of on our love for God. Now, what I want to talk about just as a kind of case study with the few minutes that we have left this morning is uh, the I mentioned this last week. This neighborhood has been constantly in the news for the last two months, and it's finally died off now after the 9-11 anniversary last week. So I don't know if it's just going to fade or if it'll kick back up again. But it's been in the news constantly about this, this downtown mosque, this downtown community center issue. And I want to say, I want to talk about what it means to be a radical Christian with respect to something like this, this downtown mosque issue. Because the radicals are, the, the common understanding is the radicals are people like the guy that wants to, to burn the Koran in Florida, right? You know, that's, a, what, that's what a radical Christian looks like. A radical Christian is the person that comes and protests the mosque, that flies in from all over the country and comes and, and protests the mosque. That's what a radical Christian does. And then the moderate Christians are the ones that say, hey, Jesus said, love your neighbor. So we're supposed to just love these people and kind of not get all up in arms about it and be nice. Those are kind of the two options that you, you have supposedly as a Christian. Be radical and get all angry about it and burn the Koran, or be moderate and say, oh, Jesus said love your neighbor and be really nice about it. Now, what's that love your neighbor? Love your neighbor is a perfect example of something that a moderate Christian would talk about because it what? It's what Christianity has in common with every other religion. Did Jesus say love your neighbor? 
Yeah, but who cares? Everybody said that. It's not like you made a big deal about it either. Somebody said, hey, what are the greatest commandments? And he's like, well, you know them. Love your neighbor. Love God. And then he spends his whole ministry setting up this new standard, talking about something else. What I want to do this morning is talk about an example of that higher standard and what it means to be really radically committed to Christ, to not be moderate and wishy-washy, but to not be angry and prejudiced either. What does it mean to be a radical Christian with respect to something like the downtown mosque? Let me read this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. When you go to the actual words of Jesus, radical looks very different than it looks, than the faux radical you see out in the world, or than this moderate position that you see out in the world. What is Jesus saying? What, how does this look for us? with something like the downtown mosque. So you have the moderate people who say, these are our neighbors, these are our friends, let's treat them with respect. Which, by the way, I mean, putting all these commands of Jesus aside for a minute, just as a religious American, our church, you may not know this, but our church is awaiting a court decision from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals right now, uh, deciding whether we'll be able to stay in a school building or not because the New York City policy is no churches and school buildings. So when Bloomberg is talking about, you know, this great religious freedom, it's like, yeah, amen, you know. We support that for them and we support it for us too. So just as a just from the moderate position, just as a as a neighbor, as a neighbor to a Muslim group, you know, that's the golden root rule part of what would I want done to me and it's like, well yeah, if, if we're building a church, we're not gonna want all these protests. We're not gonna want all this invasion. So that's kind of that's the level one response. But that's not what I'm interested in. That's not what's really important. I want to get to this this more radical response that Jesus calls for. So some people say they're neighbors, and then the radical people say, no, you're kidding me. They're enemies. These are our enemies. They want to build a victory mosque right here by the side of where they did this awful deed. These are our enemies. We can't let this happen. And so this big debate happens of, well, which kind of Muslims are they, and are they our friends, or are they enemies, and how should we treat them, and all these other issues come up. Christians are the only people on the planet who don't have to care whether they're neighbors or whether they're enemies, whether they're friendly or they're enemies. Because Jesus is the only person who says, why don't you treat them the same either way? So as a Christian, I don't, I don't care what your political position on this is. Let's say you're really for it and you think it's a great thing, or let's say you're really against it and you think it's a bad thing. It doesn't really matter. Let's say you think that they're good guys or you think they're bad guys, you think they're enemies. It doesn't really matter because Jesus says, hey, 
everybody else says, the normal religious code says, love your neighbor. I tell you, why don't you love your enemy? Why don't you love the person that hurts you? Let's just say, as a hypothesis, just for the sake of argument, that the folks that want to build the mosque were intimately connected with the perpetrators of 9-11. Now, all facts point in the opposite direction, right? I mean, there's, there's nothing to suggest that that's true. But let's just say it was true. Christians are the only people that say, we don't care. We don't care. We'll love them anyway. Now, I'm not saying that that means you have to support a building in that place. I'm not saying that that means your political positions have to be dictated by that. I'm saying that whatever happens as a Christian, it means demonstrating love even if they're the bad guys, even if they're not the wrong people. Listen to what he says. Pray for those who persecute you, and that way you will be acting as true children of your Father, for he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. How does God act? God acts with total impartiality, even to bad people. God treats bad people the same as he treats good people. That's not fair. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus says, be like that. Why? Because if you're like that, everybody will say, what in the world are they up to? That's the point. The point is to make people notice. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different than anyone else? The point is to be different. The point is to make everybody say, what are those people up to? Who do they believe in that they are acting that way? So what if the Christian statement on the downtown mosque wasn't this dichotomy between A, well, you know, they're our friends, they're our neighbors, so let's treat them with respect, or B, they're enemies, let's treat them with hatred. But what if it was this new gospel response of, you know, we don't really know. We don't really know whether they're friends or enemies, but what's unique about Jesus' message is that we're supposed to treat everybody with love either way. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, that's where it gets tough, right? You know, how do, how do you do that? Again, I'm not saying it has to change your political position. So I think you could, if, if this was what you believed as an American, be against the mosque, but let's say it gets built anyway, then you still reach out. You still extend a helping hand. You still pray for those people. You're still friendly. What if Christians were the most outspoken about the problems of Islam, but the most friendly to Muslims? What if they were the most against the advance of something that they were also the most friendly toward the adherence of? That's what Jesus is talking about here. And it's something that makes people perk up and take notice. And it's a different type of radical. It's a totally different type of radical faith. So that's the big idea this morning as we go out this week is as much as you can as, as we go into this increasingly polarized world where there's the good guys who are kind of cool about everything, don't get too excited, and there's the bad guys who are really excited but really angry and really like want to hurt people and have all these really bad impulses and feelings. The message of Christ is, is that there's another way. The message of Christ is that there's another way to be just as excited, just as amped up, just as ferocious, in a sense, as these radicals that want to do evil, but that it's about a different message, and so it takes on a totally different character. Because the message of the world is, it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you don't believe it too sincerely, right? It doesn't matter what your belief is. Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or atheist, whatever, just as long as you don't take it too seriously. Just be cool about it. You know, we don't care what the content is, just don't believe it with too much fervor. And the message of Christ is there's a new way. And it's the only way that you can get 
completely radical about it but not become an ugly person. In fact, the more radical you get about it, the better a person you become, the more loving you become, the more different you become. Let's pray. Father, as people that confess your name and have come to you, we want to live in this different way that you call us to. And we ask that even though we don't understand all the particulars of what it looks like or, or how to do it always, we ask that as we take steps in this direction, you would show us what it is that you want us to do, that you would give us new eyes to see new opportunities, that you would help us to see that we don't have to have all of the particulars of it figured out before we can say, yeah, God, I want to live in this new way. Help us to see that being radical for you is not like being radical for anything else. It's not like being radical in any other system or any other school of thought, but that it transforms us in people, as people in a different way and makes us more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.